We turn back again this morning to the end of chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel. We'll be looking again at Luke 9, 57 through 62. Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, you use these words that we look at this morning as your teaching about what it means to be a true follower of Christ, what it takes to be fit for the kingdom. God, I pray you give us wisdom about our own soul that uh, we would not be deceived, but we would uh, understand this important lesson Jesus is teaching. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to spend one more week on this passage, partly because we got to the last point with no time last week. And I think it's crucial for us to understand uh, the gospel. And uh, by way of illustration, at the beginning of the sermon, I want to read... Uh, some of the first few pages from uh, John Bunyan's famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan was put in prison for preaching the gospel. He could have got out by simply saying he'd quit preaching, but uh, he was in prison for more than 11 years. And while in prison, he wrote this book. And this book, other than Scripture, might be one of the most influential uh, most red works that's ever been written. And part of the reason for that is it's just full of Scripture. And it's an allegory, it's a story about a young man Christian, a pilgrim, that is heading towards the celestial city. And the first few pages of this book are immersed in Luke 9. You know Bunyan was reading our text as he wrote this. And then, uh, by way of illustration, we'll refer back to it. Uh, so just uh, listen as we go to story time here for a few minutes. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came upon a certain place where there was a den, and I lay down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a certain place, with his face turned away from his own house, and a book in his hand, and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw, 
saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled, not being able to contain himself any longer. He broke out with a a lamentable cry saying, what shall I do? Therefore, in his plight, he went home and restrained himself as long as he could so that his wife and children would not notice his distress. But he could not be silent long for the reason that his trouble increased. Therefore, at length, he broke out, or he broke his mind to his wife and children. And thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, he said, and to the children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am myself undone, crushed by the reason of a burden that weighs heavily upon me. Moreover, I'm certainly informed that this, our city, will be burned with fire from heaven, in which, fear, in which fearful overthrow both myself and with you my wife and my sweet babes shall come to a miserable ruin, except some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. At this, these close relatives of his were greatly amazed. It was not that they believed to be true what he said to them, but rather because they thought that some crazy disorienting disease had gotten into his head. Consequently, with the night approaching, with hope that sleep might settle his brains, they got him to bed with all haste. However, instead of sleeping, he spent the night in sighs and tears. And then uh, for the next page or so, he wakes up worse than he was before with this great burden and fear. And uh, he began the next few days to go out for long walks and he would pray and he'd read the book trying to figure out what to do. And one day when he was out in the field... Uh, a man came up to him named Evangelist. And he said to him, for why are you crying? He answered, sir, I understand that that by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and therefore have come into judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Then Evangelist said, Why are you not willing to die since this life is accompanied with so many evils? The man answered, Because I fear this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into a place of burning. And sir, if I am not fit to go to prison, I am sure not fit to go to judgment, and as consequence to execution, and the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then Evangelist said, If this is your condition, then why are you standing still? He answered, Because I do not know which way to go. Then the Evangelist gave him a parchment scroll on which it was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. Therefore the man read the scroll and looking upon Evangelist very carefully said, Which way must I go to escape? Then Evangelist, pointing with his finger beyond a very large field, said, Do you see a wicked gate over there? The man replied, No. Then he, then he was asked, do you, see, do you not see a shining light not quite so far away? He said, I think I do. Then Evangelist said, 
Keep that light before your eye and go directly toward it. Then you shall see the gate at which you will knock and you'll be told what you are to do next. So I saw in my dream that a man began, the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving his departure, began to cry out to him so that he might return. But the man put fingers in his ears and ran on crying, Life! Life! Eternal life! So he did not look behind him, but rather fled toward the middle of the plain. The neighbors also came out to see him run. And as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, some cried for him to return. Now among those who did so, there were two that were determined to fetch him back by force. The name of one was obstinate and the name of the other was pliable. Now by this time, the man was a good distance ahead of him. However, they were resolved to pursue him. And as they did in a little while, they overtook him. Then said the man to Christian, Neighbors, why have you, why have you come after me? They said to pursue, pursue you to go back with us. But he said, That can by no means be. You dwell in the city of destruction as it appears, and dying there sooner or later, you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Be more content, good neighbors, and go along with me. Obstinate replies, what? And leave our friends and comforts behind us? Yes, because all of that which you cling to and should forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that which I'm seeking to enjoy. And you, if you will go along with me and persevere, you shall obtain even as myself. For where I go, there is more than enough to spare. So come away with me and prove my words. What are the feelings that you seek since you leave all the world to find them? Christian says, I seek an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away and is laid up in heaven, being secure there, ready to be bestowed at the appointed time upon those who diligently seek it. Read about it, if you will, in my book. Tush, put away that foolish book. Tell me whether you will, you, you will return with us or not. No, not for a moment, because I have laid my hand to the plow and I will not look back. Obstinate says, come on then, pliable. Let us turn about and go home without him. He represents those crazy-headed coxcombs who, when possessed by some blind passion, are wiser in their own eyes than seven men who can offer a good reason. Pliable says, perhaps you are right, but don't be so critical. If what good Christian says is true, then the things that he seeks are better than ours. My heart is inclined to go with my neighbor. And you, and then Pliable goes with him. A few chapters go by here, or a few pages. Pliable goes with Christian, and as they're walking, he says, do you really believe the books are the words of your book are certainly true? Yes, definitely so. For it was written by one who cannot possibly lie. Pliable 
are well said, said Pliable. Tell me, what are these things? There is an endless kingdom, a celestial city to be inhabited, and everlasting life to be given to us so that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Pliable. Again, well said. Tell me still more. There are crowns of glory to be given to us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. This is excellent. What further details are there? There will be no more crying nor sorrow. For he who is the owner of that place will wipe away all our tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there? There will be with the seraphim and cherubim creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look upon them. There also you shall meet with thousands and tens of thousands who have traveled ahead of us to this place None of them are unkind, but rather loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in His presence with everlasting acceptance. In a word, we shall see the elders with their golden crowns, and we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men who were by this present world cut into pieces, burned in flames, eaten, uh, by beasts drowned in sea because of the love that they maintained for the Lord of the place, all well clothed in the garment of immortality. Pliable says, the hearing of this is enough to ravish a person's heart, but how shall we be able to enjoy and share in these things? The Lord, the governor of that country, has recorded in his book, that in essence, if you are truly willing to have them, he will bestow them upon us freely. Pliable says, well, my good companion, I am glad to hear these things. So come on, let us mend our pace. But I cannot go, Christian says, but I cannot go as fast as I would like on account of this burden that is on my back. So Pliable wants to go fast, but Christian has a burden. They both know of the celestial city, but one of them knows of the celestial city with a burden. The other one has just heard of the great things. And then here's what we read. Now I saw in my dream that just as he had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slough that was in the middle of the plain. And not watching where they were going, they both suddenly fell into the bog. The name of the slough was the slough of despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for some time, being shamefully debauded in the dirt. And Christian, because of the great burden on his back, began to sink in the mire. Then Pliable spoke. Oh, neighbor Christian, Where are you now, Christian? To be sure, I do not know. Pliable was offended and angry. Is this the happiness you spoke of that you told me about as we traveled? If we have such halting, crippling disaster at this early stage, then what may we expect now till the end of our journey? If I escape out of this with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone for me. Hence, Pliable, making several toilsome attempts, eventually 
struggled out of the mire on the side of the slough which was closest to his own house. So we went back and Christian saw him no more. Therefore, Christian was left to tumble through the slough of despond alone. But he still endeavored to struggle to that side of the slough that was further from his own house and closer to the wicked gate. And this he did, yet he was unable to get out because of the burden on his back. The difference. What's the difference between Christian and pliable? Both want to make it to the celestial city. One of them's fit to make it. The other's not fit to make it. Jesus is not something you add to your life to make it better. It's not as though you live your life and it's pretty good and you hear about Jesus and then you add Jesus into it and now you have life to the full. Paul Washer says, the true convert does not receive the gospel as an addition to his previous life, but in exchange for it. Let me read that again. The true convert, the true Christian, does not receive the gospel as an addition to his previous life, but in exchange for it. We've already seen this in Luke, haven't we? Remember in Luke 9.22, when Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And He said to all, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. The true converts, the true Christians are those who lose their previous life in order to gain life in Christ. It's not something that's just added to it. And if you look at your notes, the bold sentence there, here's what we read. Since suffering... Rejection and death come before glory. That's what Jesus said was coming. Suffering, rejection, death, then resurrection, then glory. And he says, if you want to follow me, it's going to be the same. So since suffering, rejection, and death come before glory, you better love the glory of Christ more than your life. Does that not make sense? If suffering, everybody wants comfort. Everyone wants friends. 
if suffering rejection, everyone wants to live, and then death stands before glory, the only way you're going to be fit for the kingdom of God is if you love glory more than your life. Anything in this world. Christian ran from the life he had known. The town he grew up in. His children, his wife. Because he had a burden on his back that he knew was going to lead to certain destruction. I don't know if you caught it, but at the very first paragraph, Christian's reading a book and he's got a burden on his back. When you read the gospel or you read the Bible with your eyes open, you realize you've offended God, you sinned against Him, and the wrath of God is coming upon all ungodliness. There is no good people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have a burden on their back. And unless you can rid yourself of the burden, you've offended the eternal God, so the punishment is eternal punishment. And Christian, not yet knowing how the burden was going to come off, but being pointed by evangelist to the celestial city, to glory, made it through the first slew. Why did he not go back? Because he was looking for glory. So, this morning, my question is, how's your heart? How's your love? Where's your treasure at? You won't get through the slew with knowledge in your head. You won't stay coarse if you have loves higher than Christ. You won't. Because for the sake of Christ, those loves will be challenged. In fact, Christ says you need to die to yourself, to your selfishness, to you, the, the passions of your heart. So how's your heart? The shortest parable in the Bible is Matthew 1344, it's one verse, and it's profound. Here's what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now think of this. What's it like? What's it like? Well, you're going to learn what it's like by how someone responds when they see it for what it really is. All right? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Did you catch it? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. That's losing his life. Everything he had, gone, for the new treasure that he's seen. You want to know what the kingdom of heaven's like? When a person sees it, everything they used to live for, 
loses its shine. And this king and this kingdom begins to glow. And a heart begins to treasure the glory of that kingdom. In Matthew 6.19, Jesus said, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So you can spend your time storing up things that are going to go away, that are going to be ruined. Jesus says, don't do that. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now get this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your love, your heart follows what you treasure. And then he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus is saying, where are you looking? Where's your treasure Where's your heart set? If your eye's bad, if you're supposed to be plowing forward, you set your hand to the plow, but you're looking back at the old treasures you used to live for, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. But if your eyes are set on Christ above all else, now look, I don't love Christ how I ought to love Christ. One day I will when Christ returns and there's no more sin inside me. But I'll tell you this much. I better love Christ more than anything else in this world or I will defect. And I'll turn around and I'll go after that thing. Christ is saying in our text, if you don't love me, if you don't see my call to follow me as glory, if you'd only heard rejection, suffering, death, and you didn't see the raised part, and you'll see the Son of Man coming in glory, then you're not fit for the kingdom. You'll turn around. And in our text, the three that want to follow Jesus, their love isn't there. They want to go to the celestial city. It's just, let me get my greater loves in order first. So, look at point one in your notes. See how love authenticates your profession. And we're zooming in on this last man, verse 61. Uh, Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. This seems reasonable. A man comes up to Jesus and says, just want to let you know I'm one of your followers. I'm a Christian. I'm one of yours. I'm one of your disciples. I'm going to follow you. Just let me go say farewell to my family. 
And we see that this man's profession is no good. And the reason why is he has more affection. The Lord knew that if he went home to say goodbye to his family, the greater love would win out. The pleads would have won the day for this man. Love always authenticates a true profession of faith. Better than anything else. First John is full of this. Let me just read a few passages. First John 3.11 For this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love to one another. What's the Christian message? Love God, love one another. And then it's in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's something you can't fake. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we love, or by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is love. You have a burden on your back. It's called sin. And you have no idea what eternity under the wrath of God, the horror of that, is. To wrap our minds around it is to make us get sick in our stomachs. Yet this is love. Everyone deserves punishment. All of us have rebelled against God. But God sent His Son to pay the price for our sins, to take away the burden. If you know that kind of love, then love your brothers. That's what love is. Paul says, the love of Christ was poured into my heart. That's how I can let my life die to myself for your good. How do you keep suffering, Paul? The love of Christ was poured into my heart. And then he says in verse 17 of 1 John uh, 3, if anyone has the world's uh, goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, word or talk but in deed and truth. The sign of a true believer is love. Love for God, which is evidenced in love for our neighbor. They always go together. If you're wondering how you're doing in your walk with God, look at how you're doing in your horizontal relationships. They're, they always go together. And then in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but rather He 
loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What's love? Jesus comes down and bears the wrath of God for our sins. I used to be impressed by good sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is necessary. It is not authenticating. You need sound doctrine. You need to believe what the Bible says. But I really don't care if you know what the Bible says if it hasn't turned into love because now you've just become proud and become like a Pharisee. Love authenticates affection. So you take a child, bring him up in a fundamentalist home, Tell them the rights and wrongs of Christianity. Christians do this. Christians don't do that. Christians do this. Christians don't do that. If you raise him that way, and he's never fallen in love with Christ, you really think your rules are going to win the day when the, their desires start to flow? No. The Christian life is one of treasure. It's when we see Christ better than sin. So that we go to Him for forgiveness of sin and we seek Him for pleasure. Psalm 1611 says, I'm putting myself on the spot. In my presence, there is fullness of joy. How much joy? Fullness. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want joy? Do you want pleasure? Well, the Bible says, being in a right relationship with God, having your sins forgiven in Christ, seeking Him in His Word is the fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore are in His presence. The world says, pleasures and joy are elsewhere. But if our children, if you don't love Christ, you won't last. That's the point Jesus is trying to make in, in this whole text. It's not that you don't love your family. It's in comparison to loving Christ there's, it's not even close. In fact, here's, here's some of the shocking things we see. Um, look, look at number two. See how family idolatry looks good on the outside, but will fail in the end proven by lack of love. There's those who in the name of Christ make family their idol. They make their family their God, yet it self-destructs. You would think, well, this family's going to love each other more than any other family, but it doesn't work that way. Jesus said offensive, shocking things like this. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down to count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. This is Jesus saying, Figure out if you're fit for the kingdom. If your love for me in comparison to love for your family doesn't look like hatred, he wants you to love your family. It's just if you're going to put them in the scale, it's going to look like hate. You can't build your life on your children. Your children can die in a moment. They can say, I hate you. I never want to talk to you again. You can't build your life on your wife. She can be gone in a moment or she could find another guy that's cuter and nicer than you. You can't build your life on anything other than Christ. So think of it. Is Christianity add a little bit of Jesus to your life? You know, here's my life going pretty good. I'm just going to add a little Christ. You know, it really sweetens things up. You don't get that from the Bible. You don't get that from Christ. In Matthew 10.34, he says this, Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One time, Jesus was in the crowd and as he was speaking, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The Bible does not elevate family above God. Christ came and he says, I'll split families in half. Your wife, your husband is temporary. Your marriage ends when you die. If your spouse is a Christian, you get to live forever with them in heaven. That is a blessing. But our earthly families don't last eternally unless our earthly families all come to trust Christ. The spiritual family is exalted. Jesus says, don't bless my mom, bless the one who loves my father who obeys my word. Here's how it self-destructs. The idolatry of family self-destructs. By the way, at the end of 1 John, which keeps giving this test, here's how you know you're a Christian. If you love the brothers, if you love the brothers, if you love God, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh, the very last verse of 1 John is what? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from superior loves that are going to challenge your devotion 
to Christ. Here's how it self-destructs. If you make your family number one in your life above God, here's what's going to happen. You're made to be filled by the greatest love in the world. But now you you put your spouse in there. Guess what? They're not going to be able to do it. They're going to fail you. They're going to sin against you. And if that's your most treasured possession, then you're consistently going to be devastated and broken. And not only that, you're actually going to use your spouse to give yourself your own identity, your own value. Have you ever wondered why it hurts the most when the people you're closest to don't agree with you? That's because the people closest to us, a lot of times what we do is we use them to make us feel good about ourselves. And therefore, as soon as we begin to make them number one in our lives, we actually start using them, which isn't love. But when you trust Christ and your value and your identity is filled totally, it's gifted to you in Christ and never had anything to do with your performance. It's a gift from God put in your account. You're a child of God. You're adopted by God. Your worth is full. Now, you don't need a certain response from your wife to feel valued and loved. You can't get more loved than full love. That's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches about loving your enemies, he doesn't say that until he says this, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And then he says, love your enemies. Because the only person that can truly love is the person that's been filled up with the love of Christ. You can love like the world. Loving like the world is like using each other. If you are kind towards me, I'll be kind towards you. That's how love works in the world. You do good to me. Here's how love works in Christ. Christ comes in, fills up all your value. He's the fullness of joy. He's pleasures forevermore. Now you don't marry your wife just to get stuff from her. You're already full. And enemy comes. I don't need you to respond well to me. I can love you. I'm overflowing with what Christ has given me. Leaving the basketball game yesterday, little upward basketball, and this is with little, the the youngest ages, like first to third grade. Little girl, after her first game, his mom, mom afterwards is like, did you forget how to play basketball? What happened out there? Give me a break. Give me a break. What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. This mom is trying to live off the identity that comes from her child. And her child just made her look stupid because she didn't know how to play basketball. So now, since you harmed my value and my identity, I'm going to scold you. That's how... That's how evil actually comes out of using our family members 
to gain value from them. So Christ is not saying, follow me and then you'll ditch your family. What he's saying is, is your love has to be superior than your family. You won't even be able to love your family if you don't know the love of Christ, if you don't value Christ above all else. Last point. See how loving Christ above all else will carry you through all suffering. You saw that, right? Pliable goes back because it's easy for him to go back because he says this was hard. Yeah, there may be a good city, but I know back there it's better than the slew I was just in. But the reason Christian keeps going is he knows there's no hope. You turn back, this burden's on you forever. Judgment. Those who are truly saved realize where else are we going to go? <laughs> He's the only one that can forgive sins. He's proven to be true all the time. And so we see that if your eyes are set back at the beginning of of uh, Luke 9, like 51, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem because uh, that's where he's going to be taken up. He's going to the cross, but he's seen the salvation. Listen to the end or the beginning of Hebrews 12. After he just lays out in Hebrews 11, all those who suffered on this earth looking to this celestial city, proving that their treasure wasn't on this earth, but was forward in front of them. Then he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew the shame of the cross. He knew it. He knew he was going to be stripped naked physically. He knew he was going to be spit upon. He knew he was going to be tortured. And he knew that he was going to carry the sins of the world. And the worst thing is he knew he was going to bear the wrath of God. How did he do it? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus is saying, who's fit for the kingdom? Those whose joy is in the promised treasure of Christ. Those are the ones that are fit. Those are the ones that remain with Christ even through suffering. So if you're sitting here today and you're saying, I don't think I've loved Christ like that. I've known about Christ. I don't know that I've loved him and treasured him. I don't know if I've loved him more than these sins that I know I got, but I just kind of want to hang on to. I've kind of protected these. I've repented of the sins I kind of want to repent of, 
but I really don't want to lose my life and follow Christ. If that's you, God's grace is overflowing for you because you're still sucking air. And you just heard the gospel that for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. You can cling to him. You can trust him. You can exchange your old life, which is passing away, for eternal life. If you want to call that great cost, you can call that great cost. I call that a good investment. Jesus said you can gain the whole world and lose your soul, and that's a poor deal. It's not a good deal. So, do you realize your need for him? Do you realize what he's done for you? And my question is, is what does that do inside? Does that make you want to cling to him by faith and say, that's my Lord. That's my life. I want to give my life to him. That's what Paul did. Here's the last verse I want to share with you is uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. Paul said, I thought this in my mind. One has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died to take away your sins but he also died so that you would no longer live for yourselves. How, how can you stop living for yourselves when you see superior treasure in Christ? That's when you can do it because your heart is going to follow your treasure. Are you fit? Do you love him? He's coming a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 9.27. Is that you? Do you know him in your head? Or is that where your hope is? Is that where your face is pointed? Yes, you're going to fall in the slough. Read the Pilgrim's Progress. He sins often, but he stays the course because he has superior treasure. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we all would treasure Christ above all else that we would cling to him, that we would be fit for the kingdom because of your grace, because you change us on the inside so that we can begin to die to ourselves. Father, I pray that we would turn from our sin and cling to our Lord and Savior that demonstrated your love for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.